Yeah, please stand with me as we read God's word. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, verses uh, 8 through 15. That is page 2 in your pew Bible, if that's what you're using, like I am. And um, again, this is uh, Genesis 3, 8 through 15. And not to, you know, blow, uh, spoil alert, it, Adam and Eve blow it. That's what happens. And so, uh, but God, Bruce is going to talk about God's grace Within, our, uh, within the fall of mankind. So again, Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which, of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we thank you again for your word. We thank you that um, we can learn so much from it, and um, really all that we need to know. And Lord, we just pray that, that uh, we'd listen. Uh, with open ears, open minds, and open hearts, and that um, we would be ready to apply with our hands. And God, we just uh, we know that we need you, even in in that, just to just to have the desire to obey you and to follow after you. Thank you for your provision that you've given through Jesus, your Son, that makes it possible for us to have a relationship with you. Lord, we just love you. Help us love you more. In your name, we pray. Amen. It's rather incredible the damage that one snake can make. In fact, it's incredible the damage one choice can make. And it's incredible the damage that comes from one bite of forbidden fruit. Did you hear about the woman who went to check on her corn and was swallowed by a snake? True story. Two weeks ago, a 54-year-old Indonesian woman named Watiba went missing while checking on her cornfield near her village. The field was about a half mile from her house, surrounded by cliffs, caves, and a certain number of reticulated pythons, the longest snakes in the world. Wild boars had been raiding the crops lately, and so the woman had been concerned about pigs, not so much snakes, as she walked through her cornfield that Thursday night. When she didn't return by sunrise on Friday, her sister went to the field to look for her. She found only Tibba's footprints, her flashlight, her machete, and her slippers. Later that morning, about 100 people from the village searched the cornfield. They found a snake a few dozen yards from Tibba's belongings. The snake was 23 feet long and was so bloated it could barely move. A long bulge midway down its body had a foreboding look to it. The villagers killed the snake, carried it back to the village. 
The village chief said, when they cut open the snake's belly, they found Tibba's body still intact with all her clothes. She was swallowed whole first from her head. According to the Associated Press that reported the story, the woman probably didn't die inside the snake because a python secures its prey with a bite and then wraps its body around the victim, squeezing it to death before swallowing it whole. In the Garden of Eden, another snake squeezed the very life out of Adam and Eve when they believed the serpent's lie and they ate the forbidden fruit. Adam and Eve, as we have seen so far in these first few chapters, were made in the very image of God. They were God's representatives to rule over God's creation. They were given this glorious purpose and mission in life. And God said, listen, you are here to enjoy the very blessings of life with God within the boundaries that are set by God. God was generous. God was good. In fact, God was so generous that he generously supplied them with everything that they needed to be happy in life, healthy in life, and holy in the very garden that God had planted for them and placed them in. At first, Adam and Eve gladly submitted to the God's rule. But then they doubted the very goodness of God and rebelled against God's authority when they foolishly asserted their own autonomy. In fact, it says in Genesis 3, 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. It was an insurrection. It was a revolt it was a declaration of independence from God. It was a cosmic tragedy that has impacted all of humanity throughout all of history. Yes, the this Satan was the strategy of Satan was deceptive, but the tragedy of sin was so so destructive. Paradise is now lost. Adam and Eve's eyes are now open, but it wasn't a good thing. They now felt shame at being naked and completely open to each other. In fact, according to verse 7 in Genesis 3, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Before their sin, before they ate the forbidden fruit, there was total transparency between them. There was this unhindered testimony and intimacy with God and with each other. But that is all gone now. They're guilty of sin. And the shame has, has now gripped their hearts, and the guilt that they feel is more than they can bear. Both Adam and Eve died that day in the garden. No, they didn't kill over dead immediately. But upon tasting the fruit that God told them explicitly not to eat of, they were not only doomed to a life of decay and eventually physical death, but they died spiritually. Their souls were no longer alive. They were cut off from their relationship with God, their Creator, and now they would eventually, as we will see at the end of Genesis 3 here, they will be cut off from the very Garden of Eden, paradise itself. In an instant, Adam and Eve passed from life, a good life that God had given them, to death. They passed from harmony 
with each other to alienation in isolation and disharmony and from trust to distrust all because of sin. And so what we see here now in Genesis chapter 3 is a truth that I pray will just grip your hearts that you will latch hold of here. And notice what it is. Our sin is appalling, but God's grace is amazing. What a truth that screams to us, that jumps off the pages here of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 3. Our sin is appalling, but God's grace is so amazing. Now, for sake of clarity, what is sin? How would you define sin? Well, the Bible here in Genesis chapter 3 defines sin in this way. This is what we're seeing with Adam and Eve and what they did. Sin, the core of sin, you might say the heart of sin, is really nothing more than rebellion against God and rebellion against the rule of God over our lives. That is the core of sin. And Adam and Eve did this by asserting their autonomy. So sin for our lives is no different. Our sin, when we sin, what we are doing is we are rebelling against God and his rule over our lives, and we do this by asserting our own autonomy. In other words, we want to be like God. We want to be our own gods. Now, that is rather appalling in the light of God's goodness. But God's grace is so stunning. God's grace is so amazing. Even here in chapter 3, what is considered the fall, the sin of human man, humanity. As the creator, do you realize God had every right to wipe out Adam and Eve on the spot? God could have killed them and started over with a brand new couple. And yet what we see here in this chapter is awesome. We see a God who does not wipe out rebels like Adam and Eve. This is God's amazing grace in the face of appalling sin. No wonder when you jump over to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul now reminds us in Ephesians chapter 1, specifically there when he talks about the glorious riches of Christ, the glorious grace of Christ. And in particular, he comes to verses 6 and 7. He says, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, in whom we have this redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. It's rather amazing. It's incredible. This is what we get when we don't deserve it. So what? What did Adam and Eve do next here in the garden after they sinned? But more importantly, how, how did God respond to Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned? Because God's response here in chapter 3, it is nothing short of amazing grace in the face of appalling sin. And the way that God dealt with Adam and Eve in the garden, get this, is the very same way that God deals with all of us now when we sin. So what we see God doing with Adam and Eve, how we see God's response to Adam and Eve is how God responds to you in your sin and to me in my sin. And it is rather amazing. So let, let us look at this. Let's unpack this for a few minutes here. Number one, God graciously seeks sinners like us. He graciously seeks sinners like us. Adam and Eve's response to sin 
tells us that the knowledge of good and evil that came from eating the tr- from the fruit there comes at the price of shame. One commentator observes, he says, here is one of the saddest anticlimaxes of history. They eat, they expect these marvelous results, they wait, but there grows on them the sense of shame. Mark it down. Sin always leads to guilt. And guilt leads to alienation. It leads to separation between us and others, but more importantly, between us and God. Ever since that day in the garden, our natural response now, all of humanity's natural response to the guilt of sin is to hide. That's what we naturally do. Guilty sinners hide. Notice this in your notes on the screen. Adam and Eve heard the sound of God in the garden, and then they tried to hide from the very presence of God in the garden. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, they knew, they knew within their conscience now that there was something wrong and that needed to be covered up. And so they hid from each other behind these fig leaves, and then they tried to hide from God behind trees. Verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, why hide from God? Now, obviously, we know that's impossible to do. All right, they're like children who try to hide from us as their parents after they've done something wrong. You can't hide from God, and yet that's what we find them trying to do. Why? Because guilty sinners hide. Just the day before, the very same sound of God walking in the garden had been welcomed by Adam and Eve. When they heard God coming, listen, Adam and Eve eagerly ran to meet God and to talk with God and to have fellowship with God. But this time was different because this time something was drastically wrong. This time, Adam and Eve wanted to run from, not toward, the sound of God's presence in the garden. Now, this is rather interesting because the sound of God's presence in the garden, it represents something here for us, just as it did for Adam and Eve. It represents the grace of God actually reaching out to Adam and Eve in their sin. But at the sound of God's presence, what do Adam and Eve do? They crouch deeper behind the trees in the garden. And we've already seen that trees become very important, very significant in the Garden of Eden. And now what are they doing? The trust of innocence is placed by fear of guilt. And the trees that God created for Adam and Eve's enjoyment become the hiding place to prevent God from seeing them. How sad. Because Adam and Eve, had compromised with the wrong presence of the serpent in the garden. Now they can't seem to be comfortable in the very holy presence of the one who had created them and loved them. So what do they do? They do what we do. We hide because of the guilt of sin that overwhelms us. And this is what guilty sinners do ever since Adam and Eve first tried to hide from God. Guilty sinners hide. But thankfully, we see, we have even today, a very gracious God who does what? He seeks. 
We hide as guilty sinners, but what we see is a God, a gracious God who seeks. Notice this. God sought and he found Adam and Eve hiding in the garden. Adam and Eve invented the game called hide. It involved fig leaves and trees. But God invented a better game called hide and then seek, and it involved a question. So there the first couple were, in their ridiculous fig leaves, hiding in paradise lost, when God seeks them out and asks Adam in verse 9. Here's the question God seeks out Adam with. Where are you? Where are you? Now, it's a rhetorical question, because obviously God knows where Adam is. In fact, God knew everything that had just happened. And so this question that God asked Adam, it is an invitation to Adam to take personal responsibility for his actions. That question is filled, folks, get this, with so much grace. Even in Adam's sin, God is doing what? He's lovingly seeking Adam. God is calling Adam to come to his senses and to confess his sin to the God and the creator who created him. Why? Because God is the only one that can deal in the right manner with the guilt of sin. So what would Adam do? How would Adam answer God's question? Well, Adam replies in verse 10. He tells God, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, do you notice that there's no admission of wrongdoing yet on Adam's part? At this very moment, Adam is more aware of what? His nakedness than he is of his sin against God. In fact, the only thing that Adam truly confessed to was a feeling. I'm fearful. I'm afraid. And that's what he confesses to God about. He's naked and afraid. But Adam had been naked since the day God created him. So why is he now afraid of being naked in the presence of God? Because he's no longer innocent. That's why, for the very first time in his life, Adam is now gripped with the guilt of sin. And he's afraid. And he does what now naturally we all do. He hides from the only one who can deal with his sin and shame. So let this truth now grip your heart. When guilty sinners hide, a gracious God seeks, and he always finds. You cannot hide from God, and you cannot hide your sin from God. God always seeks, and he always finds. Even now, when we sin and hide, God still graciously and lovingly, like a father to his children, calls out to us, where are you? It is a question of love. It is a question filled with grace. In fact, what is interesting, this question of God actually becomes the very mission of God throughout the rest of the Bible, and we see it even in the mission of Jesus Christ because Jesus is God's, is God's son. God sent Jesus to do what? In Jesus' own words, he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The first truth we see after Adam and Eve's sin is that God graciously seeks sinners like us. The second truth we see here is that God graciously confronts sinners like us. He confronts sinners like us. God never ignores sin. 
God never brushes it aside, as we do. God always confronts guilty sinners, but he does it graciously because his goal is restoration of the relationship with us, not condemnation of us. As we shall see, God confronted Adam and Eve, then, I mean, he confronted Adam, then Eve, and then the serpent in the order of their responsibility. And so having called out Adam with the one question, where are you, God then presses the issue with Adam, and he does this with two other questions. Parents, just a little tidbit here, a little side note, because what God is doing, he's acting like a heavenly father, which he is to Adam. Adam is his children, Adam and Eve. And so what we see here, we can learn a lesson even in parenting that when our own children, especially those kids that get to be 8, 9, 10, middle school, high school, what does God begin with? When our own children do wrong and they sin and we confront them, we see lessons on how to do that even now. God's asking questions. And the questions are filled with purpose and grace and love to draw out and so to draw out from our own kids, from their hiding of their own sin, hiding of their own guilt and shame, and to draw it out through questions here. All right, little tidbit, side note. Now, notice God's purpose for these questions. The questions of a gracious God. God confronted Adam and Eve with questions about their sin to give them opportunity to confess their sin. Now, mark it down. There is absolutely no hope whatsoever for guilty sinners until we confess our sins. This is why God confronts guilty sinners like us, to give us opportunity to confess our sins. So God graciously asked Adam in verse 11, look at the next question here. He asked Adam, hey, who told you that you were naked? Was it the serpent? Was it the woman? Was it a glance in a pool of water by the river? Someone or something told Adam that he was naked. Something went off in his mind where he now knows subconsciously, whoa, I'm naked. I'm looking in a mirror. I don't have any clothes on. What's going on? i got to hide. And then came the second question from God in verse 11. It's a very pinpointed question. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Uh-oh, Adam is now busted. He's caught red-handed by God, and he is stripped naked of all his excuses. So what will Adam do now? Well, he'll do what any self-respecting man does. He passes the buck. Will Rogers once remarked that there, were, there are two eras in American history. There's the passing of the buffalo, and then there's the passing of the buck. And actually, the passing of the buck first took place right here in the Garden of Eden when God confronted Adam about his sin. Because what we see next from Adam and Eve both are the futile excuses of two guilty sinners. Which brings us to a point here in our notes. Notice this. Adam and Eve shifted blame instead of taking responsibility for their sin. God asked Adam two questions. And Adam completely ignored the first question God asked. And then he avoided the second question that God asked. God asked Adam in verse 11, Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now, that question from God is very clear. But Adam's answer is full of blame here in verse 12. Look what he says. The woman 
whom you gave to be with me. She gave me of the tree, and I ate. Now, what is Adam doing here? Listen, he is doing what we all do. He's trying to deflect the spotlight by, minimize, by maximizing what his wife did while minimizing what he did. And we all are familiar with this because we all do it. Remember Adam's ecstasy when he first laid eyes on Eve? Remember what he said in Genesis chapter 2? Whoa, man, he wakes up from his sleep. God just made Eve, and he's like, blow me away, man. This is now bones of my bones, flesh of my flesh. But now, one chapter later, he's turning on his wife. He turns on her. He throws her under the bus, and he says, she gave me the fruit. I ate, and it's her fault, God. Don't blame me. So long, marital bliss. The honeymoon is now over in the Garden of Paradise. In fact, one commentator remarks, a healthy dose of remorse would have done Adam a world of good when God confronted him with his sinful deed, but Adam chose to blame it all on his wife. Is Adam lying, though, in his answer to God? Not exactly. The problem is he's avoiding God's question. God did not ask him where he got the fruit from. God already knew that. God asked him if he ate the fruit. That's the sin that Adam needs to confess to God the Father, which he finally does at the very end. It's weak. It's still a confession, but not before he also blamed God when he said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. Now, that is rather incredulous. Adam, if you might imagine, he's in the garden, face to face with God, and he says to God, it's not my fault, God. You're the one who put this dangerous creature by my side. I wouldn't be in this mess right now if it was just me and the animals. Why did you have to give me Eve? Think of the audacity here to blame or even insinuate that God is somehow responsible for his sin, his actions. Things are only slightly better when God asked Eve in verse 13, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. As the old saying goes, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the snake, and the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. Now, what's missing in all of this is any sense of personal responsibility for their sin. It's someone else's fault. Adam and Eve are the first people to claim the infamous status of, quote, victim. It's the woman's fault, it's God's fault, and the serpent's fault, but not my fault. As one author writes, victimhood has become the fantasy land refuge of everyone, from people to presidents to pastors, who imagine that the blame for their conduct can be placed on some other person or thing or group. Buck passing is the therapeutic trademark of the new millennium. And that is the culture in which we live now. Blame is the human way to deal with the guilt of our sin. But here's the problem. It doesn't work. 
our guilt is still there. And God still holds us responsible for our sin. And so blame shifting, it robs us of what we need most in the moment of our sin. And that is the forgiveness of our sin and reconciliation with God and one another. But understand this, there is absolutely no forgiveness and no reconciliation without confession of sin. So why hide? Why blame when we can live in freedom, when we can live in joy and in fellowship with God and one another? Think about it. When you hide and you blame, you become your own prisoner. You become trapped in your own guilt and shame and fear. But the amazing grace in this story is that God not only graciously seeks us out and confronts sinners like us, but number three, God graciously reconciles sinners like us. Hiding and blaming is our default mode when we sin, which leads us to a critical truth about the fallout from the fall into sin. Notice this in your notes. Sin always results in separation from God and others. But God offers reconciliation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Write it down. Sin always separates. Our sin... It, first of all, foremost, it separates us from God, and then it will separate us from those that are closest to us. Here in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve's rebellion was against God, but let me tell you, it set the very first couple at odds with each other. Sin is like that. It not only offends our holy God, but it separates us from God, and it alienates us from each other. And so what God does next is truly an act of grace. He actually offers the hope of reconciliation in the gospel of Jesus Christ right here in the Garden of Eden. And he does this in two manners. He does it by cursing the serpent and then conquering Satan. This is where we find the first glimmers of hope, the first gospel, if you will, in the hope of reconciliation that we can now have in light of our sin because of God's grace in our lives. Notice this. First of all, God cursed the serpent to crawl on the ground or to crawl on its belly and eat dust. Now, it's interesting to note at this point that God did not question the serpent. God questioned Adam and Eve. And God's questions to Adam and Eve were for a purpose. He's given them opportunity to confess their sin. In other words, there's hope for Adam and Eve. But there's absolutely no hope for the serpent, and more importantly, for Satan, who's behind the serpent. He curses the serpent. The serpent had been cunning and crafty in verse 1 of chapter 3, but now it was cursed. And this curse is directed both to the actual snake and to Satan who used the snake for his evil deeds. And notice what God said to the serpent in verse 14. He says, because you have done this. Right there in that phrase, God clearly says the reason why. God makes no bones about it. He says, because of this, because of this treachery, because of what you did, because of your deception, Satan, 
Because of this. Now what's interesting is next Sunday we will actually see that God uses this very same phrase for Adam. You've got to come back next Sunday and see what that's all about. Notice the rest of verse 14. He says, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now this word curse, it is a rather shocking word in a book here in Genesis that is all about blessing. God is blessing, 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 and now we come to curse. Whoa. In fact, in the Bible, to curse means to invoke God's judgment. And so when we see curse here, it is the very judgment of God on a particular individual, in this case the serpent and then Satan. And we'll see later that God will curse the ground, although he never curses Adam and Eve. And so the curse means to invoke the judgment of God for a particular offense. So it's the opposite now of bless. God is blessing. In fact, we will see, you see through the rest of the book of Genesis, God is still blessing even in spite of the sin because God is gracious. And in this case, the serpent is cursed to crawl on its belly and to eat dust. Now, does this suggest a new way of mobility for the serpent? Say, from an upright position to its belly. I mean, before the curse, did the serpent move about in a somehow vertical fashion? Possibly, although the Bible does not say. Some commentators insist the curse changed the anatomy or the appearance of the serpent and conclude that the serpent had legs and walked upright before God cursed it. I happen to take the different perspective, this one, that other commentators insist that the curse was simply God's way of saying that the serpent's downfall would be final and certain and sure. Here's what we do know for certain, is that the serpent was cursed to crawl on its belly and to eat dust. And in the Bible, that phrase, eat dust, describes utter humiliation, utter defeat. Even today, we sometimes hear this vernacular, eat dust or eat my dust. And we understand that that phrase, when we say eat my dust, we are mocking that person in defeat. We're ridiculing them because I just beat you, I'm the champion, and you're nothing. Eat my dust. The image here is rather fitting. The serpent had exalted itself above mankind. Why? Because in creation, the order was God gave humanity the authority, the dominion to rule over all creation, over all the animals. And what does this serpent do through the power of Satan? He exalts himself above. He twists the creation order. And God says, you know what? You do not have the final say in this. You do not have the last word I am because I'm the creator. And he cursed him to crawl on its belly and eat dust. Second of all, God conquered Satan through Christ's victory on the cross. Now this next verse is one of the most important verses in all of God's word. Notice what God decrees here in verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He, and notice in some of your Bibles it's capitalized, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this verse is the earliest promise of a redeemer. And it comes 
as a surprise here in the context of judgment and woes and curses. But its unexpectedness makes God's grace here and his hope of reconciliation just shine all the more brighter because God promises to do what here? To put enmity between the serpent and the woman. Now that word enmity, it's not a word we use in our everyday language, but it means antagonism. It has the idea of hostility behind it. In other words, there would be this opposition this hostility, even this fear, if you will, between the serpent and human beings. And that is certainly true even today. We see this. Ever since this day in the Garden of Eden, snakes have been, for most people, a source of fear. Ask my mom. Ask most ladies. But God's intention in this verse is directed more to Satan than it is the snake itself. In fact, God decreed on a whole nother level here that there would be enmity between the serpent's seed now and the woman's seed. Now this refers to the spiritual battle that is raging between the descendants of Eve and the offspring of Satan, people whom he has led into rebellion against God. They have rejected God. They've rejected God's rule, and now they are living as their own God. That is the offspring of Satan. And in this sense now, the, quote, seed of the woman is collective because it refers to the Jewish people that God will draw out, that he will choose out later in the book of Genesis through Father Abraham. We don't have time to get into that story. You can read it beginning in chapter 12. However, the, quote, seed of the woman also refers to something more particular, in this case to a someone more particular, an individual who would come forth from the Jewish people, from the line of David, and that person is who? It is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And God says that he will bruise Satan on his head, and Satan would bruise Jesus on his heel. And what's God talking about there? Listen, God is giving us something. He's giving us a glimmer of this grace and this hope and this gospel. He's telling us that this is the first gospel in the Bible because it's the very first promise of a coming Messiah, a Redeemer who would rescue us from our sins. Of course, we know from the rest of Scripture that on the cross, Satan did bruise Christ on his heel, a prophecy that was literally fulfilled when the nails were driven through his feet. At first, the cross seemed like this huge, great victory for Satan and a terrible defeat for God. But when Christ arose from the dead three days later, let me tell you, Satan was crushed on his head. The forces of Satan did not realize that the very plan of God would actually be promoted and even fulfilled through the death of Jesus Christ in his resurrection. And so God's curse on Satan here in Genesis 3 meant that his very own son would one day, get this, become a curse for all of us on the cross. And so God's grace now is rooted in Christ's victory on the cross. And this victory that God promised would happen. Let me tell you, this is why even to Adam and Eve, and he still does, he can now offer to sinners like us forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to him. We see it here in the fall. That God's grace trumps all. The cross of Christ reminds us 
that my sin and your sin, it is appalling. But God's grace is amazing. In light of God's goodness, let me tell you, Adam and Eve's sin is truly appalling, and yet we see a God who does not wipe out rebels and sinners like Adam and Eve. And so in an act of amazing grace, God goes looking for Adam and Eve. And that's what the whole Bible is about, a God who's on a rescue mission to reconcile sinners like us. But the question remains. The question remains. It's the question God asked Adam, and it's the question God is still asking all of us. Where are you? Where are you? It's not asking for your physical location. God knows you're here in Kansas City. He knows you're sitting here in this church. He's asking you, spiritually speaking, where are you in your hiding of your sin and guilt and shame? Are you hiding, afraid of God because of sin in your life? Through this story, God wants you to know a truth. He wants you to know that God is seeking you not to condemn you, although if you reject his promise of the seed, Jesus Christ, if you reject it, you will in the end be condemned. Make no mistake about it. You will be condemned if you reject his invitation and his question here. But right now, he is seeking and he is drawing us out, and he is asking because he wants to reconcile us. He wants to forgive us. He wants to save you from the judgment that your sin deserves through the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And he is graciously calling out to us even today, where are you? And if you will come to him by faith and confess your sin, he will save you and he will reconcile you back to himself. In fact, Paul writes in Colossians 1, For he, Jesus Christ, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And so therefore, Paul says, he exhorts us, he implores us in 2 Corinthians 5, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Folks, this is, this is now what we remember. This is what we praise God for. This is what we give gratitude and thanks for as we come to the Lord's table here in a few moments to participate in communion. What's interesting in all of this is that when Eve sinned, it says back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, she took of its fruit and ate. She took and ate. What's interesting, that wording, we find that wording actually repeated. Fast forward to the New Testament. Fast forward to the Last Supper before Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. And when he has that dinner, that last supper with his disciples, listen to the very words of Jesus now in a different way, in a saving way. 
here in Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Listen, my prayer, my hope, my goal today is that you would leave here realizing the full effect of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. Because it is our sin. But more importantly, that you would realize even more the full effect of God's grace on the cross to reconcile sinners like us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, oh, how we thank you for the truth of your word here in Genesis. Help us to see our own sins and then to rely solely on your grace in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with you. Father, thank you for seeking sinners like us. Thank you for confronting sinners like us. And most of all, reconciling sinners like us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to prepare to participate in communion. And here at LifeBridge, we don't believe that you need to be a, a member necessarily here of our church family. But we do believe that you need to be a member of God's eternal family through your confession of sin, through your repentance of sin, and trust in God's provision for your sin in Jesus Christ. And then identify with God's family through his local church, through baptism. And so if that describes you, man, we invite you to come and participate in communion located at the four tables here in the auditorium. We ask that you take the bread and the cup back to your seat and know that this bread and this juice, it represents the body and blood of Jesus when he died on the cross for our sins. And it reminds us of who our Lord is and what he has done for us and is doing for us and yet will do for us when he returns. And so the music's going to play, and as it does, you're welcome to stand, walk out of your seat, and walk to any one of these four tables at your convenience and go back to your pew. If you're of such, your health does not allow you to stand and walk to him, just Stay in your seat and at the end kind of raise your hand and one of us will see you and we'll actually bring you a cup of juice and, and the bread to you so you can still participate. Kirk, will you play? And you're invited to participate.